You are listening to the sermon audio of New Hope Community Church in Canaan, New Hampshire. For more information, visit our website at newhopecommunity.net. Some people run from it like the plague. Others relentlessly pursue after it. And our culture today is seeking to redefine it. What I'm referring to is the institution of marriage. What what, what should a marriage look like? And in the middle of Peter's epistle here, he moves to the subject of important relationships in life. So from chapter 2, 11 through 4, 11, he's concentrating here on what does Christianity look like in the real world when it comes to three of the most important relationships that we have as Christians. One is our relationship to the state, to authorities that are over us in the world. The second one, which we looked at last week, was the relationship between slaves and masters. Uh, We kind of said between Christians in the workplace, between those who you work for. Uh, What does that look like? And then he comes to really the most intimate human relationship, and that is marriage. How should a Christian marriage look in a world where we see people running from marriage, either repeatedly going into marriage, or those who feel that it's an outdated institution? And I have to add a caveat to this message, because I think sometimes immediately when we read a passage and it's about marriage, we kind of feel, well, if you're single, divorced, widowed, that somehow this doesn't relate to you. And I'd like you to think about the fact that this does relate to all of us in different ways. Because if you're single, divorced, widowed, it relates to the fact that you might have other people in your life who are married. Maybe God will use you to speak to someone about the significance of how God designed marriage. And you can serve as a powerful testimony to help those who are young understand that this is not something that our culture can define for us, but we must go to God's word for what it should look like and what it must look like. So I want to turn to 1 Peter chapter 3. And as we come to this, you notice how it begins in verse 1. Wives in the same way be submissive. Now, before you start to think, well, Peter is sexist here, uh, let's contact the slash tag me too and try to, you know, report Peter. Notice if you would, he uses the same wording in chapter 2, verse 13, when he's talking about as Christians, how do we relate to those over us, male and female, says submit. Then in verse 18, when he's referring to Christian slaves relating to their masters, male and female, he says the same thing. Be submissive. Submit to the authorities that are over you, realizing that this is by God's design. And if we understand God's sovereignty, that would be reflected in our response to these different individuals in our lives. But as you can tell by looking at this passage, verses 1 through 6, Peter gives instructions for wives. And he jumps right into this discussion by saying, be submissive. And we want to make sure we understand the word submissive here means to voluntarily place oneself 
under the authority of another. And it's within the bigger context that this whole design is by God's sovereignty. Paul in Romans 13 would simply say, if you resist this design, you're not resisting a cultural institution or a cultural design, you're resisting God. And so as we look closely at this passage, notice what Peter recognizes about women in the Roman Empire in the first century. Because he begins his address immediately speaking to wives, to those who are married, to those in the church who have been scattered for their faith. Now, we might not think that's much of a big deal, but consider this, Peter addresses them as individuals, as individual moral agents who are co-equal with men before God. Now, I'm not denying that there are, I believe, specific uh, distinctions in roles, but, but in terms of nature, in terms of being created in the image of God, Peter immediately jumps to a place that would be very counter-cultural. Even though we know Rome in some ways had somewhat of an elevated status for women in the Roman Empire compared to other regions outside of it, let me remind you how Rome viewed wives. Wives were the property of their husbands. Uh, wives were not to have friends of their own upon marriage. Upon marriage, you were only to have the same friends as your husband. Uh, and so if you had other friendships, those really should be tossed aside because now your husband's friends were now your friends. And if that isn't enough, wives were expected to not have their own personal beliefs about the gods, but to believe in the gods that their husbands believed in. So for Peter to begin this section of the letter and say wives is, is amazing. It, it tells us that in Scripture we see God reminding us of the privilege and elevated position that, that wives are to have in God's design of marriage. You go to verse 7, at the very end of verse 7, where he says, referring to the wife, and we'll get to this in a moment, the weaker partner as heirs with you of the gracious gift of life. Not just recognizing what we know from Genesis, both male and female were created in the image of God, but in Christ Jesus we are co-heirs together. I am fully convinced when we get to heaven there is not a separate section for women and a separate section for men. We will all be one in Christ with our attention, our focus upon him who sits upon the throne. So Peter's words here are strikingly counter-cultural. And so for anyone to often criticize and say, well, you know, the scriptures are very sexist, is revealing they have not really studied, not just a culture of Peter's day and Paul's day, but they haven't really looked at what does Scripture actually say about marriage. So with these instructions about wives, we find that Peter's words echo the same teaching of Paul. Now we do know that Peter was married. We, we don't know at this point if Peter's wife was still alive, but, but we know Peter was married. 
but you see his teaching, which is coming directly from God, also echoes the teaching of Paul, who we know was single. Uh, but we'll come right back to 1 Peter, but I want to go to Ephesians chapter 5. And in Ephesians 5, Paul gives some very solid teaching, timeless teaching, about marriage. In Ephesians 5, verses 22 through 24. And Paul does not hesitate to speak of submitting and what that means. Ephesians 5, and you can follow along as I read 22 through 24. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. And we know that there are some parameters here that Scripture teaches. This is not endorsing um, you know, situations where there's some, some physical abuse going on, other areas that must be addressed individually. But, but notice in this case, not just that Paul says wives must submit, but then he also refers to the fact that the relationship of the husband is like Christ and the church. And so if I were to ask you, is the work of the church to submit to Christ, would any of you have a problem with that? Would you be like, no, that infringes on my personal freedoms and my rights. You know, no one, Christ is not going to be over me telling me what we should be doing as a church. No, we recognize that, and we're thankful for that. So notice in the same way there's a design here that is to reflect in marriage, Christ's relationship to the church, that gives us this thought that there is submission on many different levels. The wife submitting to her husband, the husband submitting to Christ, the church submitting to the lordship and direction of its head, Jesus Christ. And so it helps us kind of take the word submit and submissive in a more biblical context. And I think as you use this word today, we're not surprised to see there's a very different reaction that people have to this word submit. In other words, according to Paul and Peter, this is an empowering and freeing word. It's taking us above and outside of our culture to God's design for marriage. And yet, I don't need to remind you, our world sees this word today in this context as enslaving and oppressing. And in one sense, maybe that shouldn't surprise us, because isn't that how the world often sees spiritual truth? It's foolishness. It doesn't make sense. It seems to teach the exact opposite of what we're saying is God's design. And so Peter speaks here to wives and says, let me instruct you based on God's word how this faith in Christ should live itself out in this very intimate area of your lives. But let's go back to 1 Peter because we need to look a little more closely at a very sensitive situation that Peter brings up. Uh, and so you have this general principle 
That's stated in the first part of verse 1. Be submissive to your husbands and understanding that in its appropriate biblical context. But then he brings up this sensitive situation, the reality that seemed to be very evident in the early church. It's something Paul would have to address as well. What does a wife do when she's married to an unbeliever? And this may be the result of many different factors. It could be that maybe you had someone who is a Christian and they married someone who's not a Christian and then they start wondering now, should they stay married to this person? It may also have been a different context, which is probably a growing issue in the early church. What happens when you have two unbelievers get married and one of them comes to acknowledge Christ as Savior and Lord? Does that change now, the bond that was there? Because we know when Paul addressed this to his letter to the church in Corinthians, he was realizing some people were using the argument, well, now we're unequally yoked. You know, we, we were the same when we got married, but I'm a Christian, so should I find someone else who is a Christian? And so because of the sanctity of marriage, Peter, just like Paul, says, no, this is no ground for you to pursue dissolving that or seeking divorce because now you are a believer and your spouse is not. Instead, there's a new focus that you must have. And so you see in the last half of verse 1, he says, um, Wives, in the same way, be submissive to your husbands, so that if any of them do not believe the word, they may be won over without words by the behavior of their wives. Now the word one is a commercial term, means profit or gain. Clearly in this context, the word one is moving beyond the commercial scope and saying, you want to see your husband come to know Christ. And, and how is that going to work? Well, you, you do need to verbally give testimony, but there may reach a point where spiritually lecturing and other things need to be set aside so that your life itself will be a powerful testimony. And, and you can kind of see how there's a struggle here. Uh, you know, how do you honor Christ in a marriage where one partner is, is not a believer? They, they want to stay married, but they're not a believer. Uh, and I think it's refreshing to us to see Scripture does not shy away from these sensitive issues. It's saying, look, your Christian faith in a sinful world is going to encounter many different obstacles and challenges. And one of those will be in this area of marriage, in this particular situation. And I think for any of us who are married, have been married to a Christian, uh, I think you probably agree, even being married to another Christian, can it be challenging at times? Yeah, so, so now compound that to what if you don't have that common basis to build on? But you see in verses 2 through 4, even a greater description of, of what does this godly wife, what should she look like? Uh, and so you see in verses 2 through 4, Peter takes us through and gives us some details. He speaks here of, of the influence your testimony or witness has in verse 2. They will see the purity and reverence of your lives. 
Now, clearly this is only something God can produce as we rely upon him. And the purity here is not simply sexually, that the wife is sexually faithful, but, but that in every area of her life, in all of her conduct, she is, is magnifying and living out her faith before her unsaved spouse. That is not easy. I'm sure you know people, I know people who have been in a marriage many years with an unbeliever and it, it's challenging. But it doesn't take away from the responsibility and dependence on God. Let, let them see in you the purity, the faithfulness of your life day in, day out. And the thought of reverence here would clearly be not, not some kind of fear in terms of what your husband might say or do or difficulties they might incumbent upon you. But fear here out of fear of the Lord. And you notice already in Peter's epistle, in chapter 1, verse 17, he refers to how we should live this life in fear of God. And then in chapter 2, as well, verse 17, in talking about our relationships, already said, show proper respect to everyone, love the brotherhood of believers, fear God, honor the king. Now, notice that distinction he brought out. We, we only fear, or should only fear God. And so for the wife in this situation, it says, continue to walk with God. Don't, don't be fearful of your husband, fearful of, of other things. Keep, keep the right perspective. And there is no assurance or guarantee here made because we realize every individual is responsible for their response to God. And so you cannot win on your own, your spouse to the Lord. You shouldn't even rely on your church to win your spouse to the Lord, although he may choose to use those vehicles. But it's clearly a work of the Spirit. But the reminder here, in that situation, honor the vows that were taken, the sanctity of how God designed marriage. Pray for your husband's salvation. Uh, but demonstrate your salvation in Christ through purity and reverence. But then it goes on in verse 3 uh, to talk about the, the right perspective on, on beauty. Uh, and this is always a challenging issue. You know, we live in our world where we hear about, um, you know, distorted views on the body, uh, that we exalt it too much. Uh, we hear of body shaming, you know, and things like that. What, what is God's definition or guideline here for beauty? Uh, and I think as you look at this, you realize that the emphasis is being turned inward. In other words, the development of inner spiritual graces is, is what is most important. And so in this case, in, in a Roman society, where just like today, often you had a very strong emphasis on outward appearances, on, on prestige, on distinguishing and showing others what class or level of society you're in based on your, your clothes, your amount of jewelry. That, that Peter is saying, let's not be just like the world when it comes to what we are saying we value. 
And again, we come to a phrase here that's often so misunderstood. When in, in light of this, where he, he gives you kind of three exhortations in verse 3, um, you know, don't let your beauty be from outward adornment, braided hair, wearing of gold jewelry and fine clothes. Instead, let it be of your inner self, the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great worth in God's sight. Now, it's that phrase, gentle and quiet, that sometimes sends us in all different kinds of directions. You know, what, what does that mean? Never share your opinion. Don't speak up in church. Um, you know, if you have a question, uh, you know, have someone else ask it, not you. Uh, and I think as you look at this, gentle means literally meek, lowly, in humility, uh, like Christ. You know, how, how can you live in this very difficult marriage and model a sense of humility. I have certainly counseled many, many couples, and I probably doesn't surprise you often. The reason they come for counseling is one spouse is sure that God needs to change the other. Not themselves, but the other person. And they're all for that, and they want God to do that. They just can't understand why the other spouse isn't on board. Well, you notice as you read this, that's not the emphasis to take. Yes, God certainly has work to do in our spouses. And some of you will talk about that on the way home today from church. But the reality is he, he wants to and needs to work in each of us. So for the godly wife in this situation, he says, your, your most powerful testimony is a meekness, a humility, not compromising on biblical truth or what you believe. This isn't the Roman thought, well, just believe what your husband believes. Don't, you know, stand firm on the faith in Christ. But at the same time, quiet means not, not a divisive spirit. Um, you know, exercising great wisdom and discernment. Being in every way a, a peacemaker. Uh, very powerful words that says this is what will often speak and break through a hardness and resistance. Now, it is interesting to consider that this is a true biblical timeless principle. At the same time, when it says, well, don't wear much gold, you know, we want to be careful because there are culturally relevant applications to this. So, for example, we know in the Roman Empire, you see this in James' letter, where he speaks about people who come uh, with lots of gold on. In James, it speaks of, you know, giving preference to those who come literally gold-fingered. Uh, in other words, one of the things was to kind of wear as many rings as possible uh, to indicate to others who, who you are. Uh, there's nothing wrong with dressing nicely. There's nothing wrong with, you know, getting ready for church, worship, whatever it is, uh, and wanting to look good. But in Peter's day, you had some additional problems. One is, in his culture, in the Roman Empire, it, it was not typical for a woman to be out alone, period. You should always be accompanied in the Roman Empire by a man. So I think Peter was a little concerned if we have believing wives who are attending sometimes church without their spouse because they're not saved, we don't want to send the wrong message. That they're gathering to worship, they're, they're not recruiting for a partner. And so he speaks about modesty, as Paul would about dress, 
I'm not saying to be out of style, I'm not saying to stand out in some weird way, uh, but at the same time, there was a concern that some of these people who are Christians who maybe were dressing in a very elite and fancy style would be sending the wrong message when they gathered for church. In other words, they might subtly be creating divisions within the church because their class would be evident and it may be so high above some of those who were simply slaves joining together in worship that it would fracture the unity that there needed to be in the church. What a reminder as you think of marriage, it's not about what are my rights, but what does real love look like? And is true love willing to set aside what may at times be our right, but is not profitable and is not beneficial? You notice in verses 5 and 6, as a motivation, Peter reminds these godly women uh, that they are worthy to be imitated, that there are many who have gone before them that should encourage and strengthen them. Um, and the interesting example he gives is Sarah, who called her husband master. Now again, we could run with this and say, well, there you go, Bible's being sexist, you know what it's saying? A woman has to call her husband master. But, but you gotta take it in its cultural context. And if you look at Sarah in Genesis, is she a woman who speaks her mind? Yeah, you, you don't find her just kind of nodding to Abraham like, oh, whatever, you know, I can't, I can't speak, got to be silent. Uh, she speaks her mind, but at the same time, there's this characteristic of her that clearly is a part of her life and marriage, that she demonstrates a respect to Abraham. Out of her trust in God, she respects Abraham. Even when he says, we're going to go into Egypt and, and you need to tell people you're my sister. Who, who does she ultimately trust in? Not like Abraham, you're just so brilliant. This is an amazing plot. Uh, but, but she trusts in God. She knows God is directing Abraham. And I find it fascinating when you look in church history. Every true man who has been used in a powerful way by God has been completed and complimented by a godly wife. We speak of Martin Luther, but, but if you talk of Luther, you've got to talk of his wife, Katie. And if you look at John Wesley, you have to talk about Susanna Wesley, who, who brought those kids up in the training and admonition of the Lord. And if you're going to talk about Charles Purgeon, which you always should do, you have to talk about his wife, Susanna Spurgeon, who at times came along and gave him words of comfort, uh, but at other times she spoke challenging words to him. And so we see the, the, the role here that a godly woman, a godly wife plays in one of the most difficult situations in life. But Peter is not done. He has something to say to husbands. And even though the section on husbands is shorter, it is not a reflection that, that husbands somehow need less counsel in this area. Because within that one verse, he packs a lot. And so you notice his instructions to husbands in verse 7. Again, husbands in the same way. 
So you have responsibilities before God. This isn't a power trip for you in a godly marriage. You yourself have responsibilities. And you notice his instructions. First of all, in the same way, be considerate as you live with your wives. In other words, husbands should be students of their wives. I'll be the first to admit, I, I don't think I did a really good job on that part earlier in our marriage. Uh, I think I'm doing a lot better job now. Uh, don't ask my wife, just take my word for it. Uh, but, but this reality, husbands should be students of their wives. In, in other words, this word considerate literally means they should have knowledge and understanding of their wives. That they should know what is helpful and what isn't. Now, right away, if you're a husband listening to this, you're thinking, oh man, I, I can't, I'm not good at that. Well, yeah, we're not in and of ourselves. That, that's where our dependence on Christ and His work in us is key. But to have knowledge and understanding of your wives. Then he says, treat them with respect as the weaker partner or the weaker vessel. Now this is not a dig in any way on the wives. Remember, you've got to take this all in context, the consistency of Peter's instructions to both in the same way. But he's saying here, as, as husbands, your task is to, to honor and value your wife. And to realize in one sense, I, I think it's literally true, they, they are physically the weaker sex which would also here prohibit a husband from physically trying to intimidate his wife, uh, to verbally try to manipulate her, because he's not acting in love. He's not recognizing this biblical design. And I think it's true the more we have psychologists, psychiatrists study male and female, what's the big discovery we hear them saying? They're very different. They think differently, they process differently. Basically what scripture is saying here in this case, that there are differences between the sexes. And in some areas, women can be more vulnerable to men to certain things. And a husband is to know what is that for his wife? Because that can vary from marriage to marriage. But that is the husband's job. That is his instructions. No wonder Paul in Ephesians 5, which we read earlier, would later say husbands are to love their wives, but then goes on and says, just like you take care of your body, you are to cherish and nurture your wife. Same thing. Be a student of your wife. Uh, learn what, what makes her tick. Uh, what are the things that she enjoys that meet her needs? What are the things that don't. Uh, and I'm sure you've had this happen to you, I've had it happen to me, uh, where occasionally my wife will be telling me something, and maybe this is the pastor in me, maybe it's the counselor in me. I assume she wants me to tell her, this is what you should do. But there are times when that's not really what she wants. She just wants me to listen. Now there are other times where she does need me to say, I think you should do this, this, and this. That's a part of that process. Be considerate.
But then Peter says something else at the end of verse 7, and we don't want to miss this. He says, so that nothing will hinder your prayers. In other words, your relationship to your wife is directly dependent and a reflection on your relationship with God. Marriage is not just a physical act, but it is in many ways a, a spiritual act. And for a Christian, it is worship. How, how do we reflect our love for God and our worship of God in the most intimate human relationship designed by God? Again, in counseling, often you, you hear so many other issues couples think is at the root of their problem. And those issues are real, and they, they fracture their relationship. But when you start digging down deeper, you often realize there, there's a spiritual issue going on. It's a reflection of where they are in their walk with Christ. And so for husbands, this reminder, maybe because we sometimes don't connect things the way we should, this will hinder your prayers. It will be an obstacle to your spiritual growth. It should get your attention. So you see your marriage, your relationship with your spouse as a means to honor and glorify God. What a balanced teaching for husbands and wives. As a true story, back in the Middle Ages, uh, Weinsberg Castle uh, became a fortress. And so in this German community, the people flocked to the castle. And the castle at the same time held all of the wealth of the town. Well, it was under siege and, and they refused to leave the castle. But it was basically a hopeless battle. Well, eventually the enemy tried to negotiate surrender terms. And they said that we will allow all of the women and children to leave the castle safely. Well, those in the castle responded and said, that's not good enough. What we want is a guarantee, not just that women and children can leave safely, but you'll let the women carry out as much of the treasures in the castle as they can. Well, the enemy was reluctant, but then agreed, because they knew there was so much wealth in that castle that there was no way that these women could carry out even a small fraction of it. But what shocked them was when they opened the doors of the castle, the women came out carrying not gold or silver, but carrying their husbands. What a reminder to us, what a powerful way of showing our world what marriage is to be if we would treasure our spouses and that we would speak to others, even if we're not married, about how God has designed marriage and why. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, may you guard us against accepting the way that our culture and the world wants to redefine and how it wants to perceive the biblical guidelines for marriage. We know 
that close relationships with others, even in marriage, cannot happen unless our relationship with you is as close as it should be. And so whether we're married or not, these words should affect all of us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.